Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Broadway Bullet, Volume 609, Make Way for More Women, for December 8th, 2015. Subscribe through iTunes or RSS and don't miss an episode. In this episode, Catherine Walker talks about Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, her history with the show, and her eventual takeover of the role of Phoebe. Also, the touching story of her first big break in Mary Poppins. Lisa Dozier talks about the ups and downs and ins and outs of general management. And we have a panel from the League of Professional Theater Women to discuss the ongoing issue of availability of women's roles. So buckle up, because we got a lot ahead. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Thank you, Sid Gold's Request Room, New York City's original rock and roll piano bar for great cocktails and live piano karaoke with Joe McGinty. Sid Gold's Request Room, located at West 26th Street between 6th and 7th Avenues. Time flies, and the first half of season six is coming to a close. I'm heading over tomorrow morning to uh, New York City to get another batch of interviews for the next part of the year. Uh, We got some great stuff scheduled with Hamilton, Andrea McArdle, Sheer Madness, possibly the president of Actors' Equity. So um, what I'm going to be doing is posting up kind of a schedule of some of the bigger interviews on Twitter and Facebook and uh, taking some questions from you guys. So uh, kind of pay attention over the next few days. Uh, I'm doing interviews from the 14th to the 18th of December. And uh, we're going to have a bunch of great new stuff to come back with. In the meantime, uh, this whole episode is devoted to women. Uh, That shouldn't feel like a special occasion, but it does. And many of the interviews will talk about why. And the final interview on this thing is in full. We have a lot of like our interviews here edited and the full interviews are available on the site. But um, our discussion with the full League of Professional Theater Women's panel about women's roles, I just didn't know how to cut it up. And it seemed uh, too important to cut up. So the full thing will be airing at the end of this. Uh, A great discussion about what we can possibly do. So, again, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo. And sit back and enjoy this week's interviews. Up Close. 
All right. I am joined in the studio by the incredibly lovely and talented actress, Catherine Walker, who only had to kill eight actresses in front of her to take over the lead <laughs> in A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Oh, if only it were only eight. <laughs> How are you doing today? I thought that was a nice lead into the plot. I'm uh, really well. Thank you for having me. This is really cool. Well, I got a chance to see your very, very funny performance in uh, the show. And, and like I said, I was like, oh, she started off in a, a smaller role and moved to the lead. That's like... I, unheard of. I know, right? <laughs> Isn't that sort of sad, though, that that's unheard of? But, um, yeah, it's kind of a little bit of a Cinderella story, I guess. But, um, yeah, I had a long journey with The Gentleman's Guide. When I first moved to the city, I don't want to date myself, but when I first moved to the city many <laughs> years ago, my vocal coach has been, since then, Stephen Lutback, who is the composer of A Gentleman's okay. Guide. So very early on, before the show was even called A Gentleman's Guide, I was singing music from the show around town. Steve would do a lot of cabarets around town, down at the Duplex and then Laurie Beachman Theater. And occasionally he would ask me to come and sing a couple numbers with him. And so we would often do the trio. We did a, a number that's now cut from the show um, and a few other things that are, are still in the show. So then I got to do a bunch of workshops around town. Uh, I guess it did go to Sundance, but I didn't get to go with it. Okay. I was doing Mary Poppins at the time. And um, Aren't those choices hard? Yeah, it <laughs> is because it's like feast or famine, you know? And it's like, why couldn't one of these come around when, I, the you know, the year or two I wasn't working and begging for a job? Um, but I did, I auditioned actually for the Hartford production of A Gentleman's Guide and I didn't get it and I was devastated because I just love the show so much from learning about it, watching it grow and develop over the years. And he was your voice teacher. Were you like, I'd be pissed. Well, I don't think, I don't think you can have, I certainly don't ever have any expectations. I mean, Steve has been such a, a champion for me. Uh, but, you know, a lot of times, I mean, it's not in one person's hands. And it was a very, very small, I mean, we have a very small ensemble cast now, but it was even smaller in Hartford. So they needed a female to play the role of Miss Barley and Lady Eugenia. So it had to be a, a, you know, a woman who could span a little bit older and play a little bit younger too. And I just wasn't I couldn't play Lady Eugenia. So, so I, you killed her. I killed, <laughs> I killed her and came to San Diego. I, I, they, they got such great reviews in Hartford that they were given an expanded budget for when it moved to San Diego. And that's when I got the call and they said, would you join us in San Diego? And of course, like we just mm -hmm. talked about things always happen at once. Yeah. I was getting ready to get married and I was in the middle of wedding planning and I I talked to my fiance my husband my fiance at the time and I said you know how much I love this show and you know it's no guarantee I don't know if it'll come to Broadway if it does I don't know if I will come with it but I just I think I have to go and you know he totally agreed and so I handed my wedding big wedding binder to my mom and I was like see you in May <laughs> good luck <laughs> um, and then I did go to San Diego and I was just in the ensemble, I didn't have any specialty featured role or anything. I was just in the ensemble. But it was just so cool to finally 
see it on its feet and all the creative team and everything that they did to bring bring it to life after doing it all these years in you know down it how long has this been in how long has this oh, whole development process been at least 10 years at least a decade probably longer for Stephen and Robert um i hear there was a 2 year hang up even yeah. though this is based on a uh public domain a Correct. public domain book that the movie for some reason decided they yeah there was some legal snafus and time period where it was not looking so good, but they won, and here <laughs> we are. Um, so anyway, I you know I did San Diego, and then I had to re audition for the Broadway company, and uh, that's when I got the role of Miss Barley. So I was original company playing the role of Miss Barley, and I was understudying Phoebe and Sabella which I, I didn't want to do. <laughs> I only wanted to cover Phoebe yeah. because I had understudied uh, both in Mary Poppins and in Ragtime, and I've seen some crazy things happen for understudies. Well, tell us. By all <laughs> means, that sounds juicy. I just knew in my head, and it did happen. Thankfully, not until last spring, so we had been open for like six months. But there was a week where both our Phoebe and Sabella um, they were having a vocal trouble and they couldn't, they each could only do like five shows and our other swing, I guess was out of town or something. So I was the first line of defense and I had to jump around. <laughs> I never played one role in a row that week. So let's say Tuesday night, I played Sabella Wednesday afternoon. I played Phoebe Wednesday night. I went back to Sabella <laughs> Thursday. I was in my track. Friday, I was back to Phoebe. Saturday afternoon, I was Sabella. Saturday night, I was in my track. And then, you know, Sunday, I was Phoebe again or whatever. And like, I think I definitely developed a little bit of multiple personality disorder during that time frame. Uh, but I got through it. Um, and I was like, well, you know, that's out of the way. But it was definitely a challenge, I mean, especially in Act 2. With that type of situation, does it help that you've been involved with the show for so long? Or I, I could so. Definitely. Okay. I mean, I always identified with Phoebe. Um, so when I found out that I was going to also have to cover Sabella, I really, even before we started rehearsal, I started to dive into that material with my voice teacher, um, with Steve, you know, because I just, I didn't feel as confident about my ability to portray Sabella as I did Phoebe. But it was actually, I think, in hindsight, now playing Phoebe, I, I actually think it was a fantastic experience for me to be able to experience the show from both perspectives of both women. And I think it now sort of helps to make my portrayal of Phoebe maybe a little juicier because yeah. of that. So how long have you now been the one and only Phoebe? <laughs> I took over uh, uh, in October. Yeah. So that was just, I mean, it was, it was my dream. That's, I, I mean, that was my dream. I, I've never, yeah, this is my third Broadway show, but I've, I've never had the opportunity to. So Mary Poppins and what else then? The Ragtime Revival. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I just, I've never had a chance to play a character for this long, ever. And for somebody like me who's, a perfectionist and I love to be as prepared as I possibly can for everything. And we're not always allotted that in this industry. It's always, it's very much, you know, here's material, go, go, go. And I, I just like things to marinate a little. So this 
is just a dream come true for me. Um, to be able to start to feel comfortable enough to try new things and get the score really into my voice so that I can really grow. And, you know, the more I sing it, the more I have more breath control and I'm able to try new things and make a line longer, or try a little extra trill here or there or whatever. And that's just, that's a really joyful place to be. So I feel very, very lucky. I mean, you know, to, like I said, to see the show go from rehearsal room to winning a Tony and then for me to be able to take over as Phoebe, I feel like it's the unicorn of theater experiences. It's just so rare. Well, one thing I correct me if I'm wrong, you're a soprano, correct? I am. And this role, Phoebe, is actually a soprano role. I know. It's that also. I mean, that is like, it's just so rare to find a score like this. And for me, I feel like it's the sort of the perfect storm of things to suit my skill set. And I don't feel like in theater right now that comes along so often. I hope yeah. that Gentleman's Guide sort of ushers in a new era of that more classic, traditional musical theater style. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love all the contemporary stuff, but for well, me... Yeah, the Sopranos have been... A, there's not many of them in, in musicals anymore. They're right. Not only in pop music, Sopranos have kind of gone like out of fashion. And, I know. But it's it, we're missing a whole timber. I look at, you yeah. know, I'm a composer myself, and I'm going... Vocal timbers add a lot in storytelling. Absolutely. I mean, to me, like I think the fact that they made uh, Phoebe a soprano helps convey her true innocence. Oh, absolutely. And and when she gets daring and she mm -hmm. gets a little flirty, you can hear it in the mm -hmm. those high trills and the the tremolo on the top. It's it it really does inform the character and it it gives her another layer. And along with that, and especially in a show where everybody's deceiving everybody. <laughs> You know, like I said, that, that I, I, we got a sense right away that I think Phoebe's pure, and maybe the audience doesn't know why, but I think that voice, that singing soprano, yeah, contains this purity. That oh. well, thank you. Yeah, I think it definitely does bring a a groundedness to her. And I I, I did that for the same reason. The reason I say that, you know, it wasn't just analyzing your show, but the same reason <laughs> I actually have a soprano in a show I've just written, okay. and I did it very consciously for that reason. I wanted yeah. I wanted it to convey something about her character. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a big hurdle for me was, you know, figuring out what my my job is really within the show because you hear all of these huge laughs happening before you go on, before, after you go on. And I think that you can fall into the trap of, oh, I want to make them laugh too. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. I think I do, but that's not really, that's not really my job. I think my job is to kind of, bring it back a little bit to a little bit more earnest and grounded place for a moment so that then you get back into the funny stuff. I think it's even funnier for the other things if it's kind of offset by these moments of purity, like you said. So with that is as a soprano and then, and I, I hope there are more because I've worked with one actress who's done very good job in all of our works, but I never really heard her soprano voice. Right. She's always said, I'm a soprano, I'm a soprano. Yeah. And I did finally get a chance recently to really hear her sing something really well prepared soprano. I'm like, yeah. yeah, it's it's a shame that there aren't more roles I for know. you. She's learned how to sing alto. I'm I'm I sure know. you've learned how to sing alto. Sure. I mean, when I when I came to New York, I went to Carnegie Mellon for uh, classical voice. I studied vocal performance, and so I had you know opera training. But I always knew that I loved musical theater. I didn't want to be an opera singer. But in order to be competitive here, when I came to the city, you know, I I didn't know how to mix or belt, so I had to find a teacher here that would help me be you know more of a crossover artist to be competitive. But 
my heart has always been with that real soprano sound. And I feel like Gentleman's Guide kind of, because there's all of this humor and stuff and the, the script is so clever, I kind of feel in a way that we sort of sneak in the fact that it's more of that traditional classic sounding musical theater and people leave the theater, oh, that was great. Oh my God, we didn't hear anybody belt. That's crazy, you know? So I hope that, like I said, I hope this ushers in a new era of more of that kind of material. So maybe to wrap up with that as a closing moment, is there, can you identify a small, itty bitty imperceptible moment of joy in your, that you've done in your career that on the surface may not seem like much, but meant a lot to you to kind of wrap this up? Well, honestly, I was going through a lot of anxiety issues before I got Gentleman's Guide in San Diego. And for me, when I got to San Diego, it was a chance for me to, again, I thought about quitting because I, I just, I didn't want to feel that anxiety anymore. And it was very prevalent when I was performing. And I thought, you know what, if I can go to San Diego, not have a feature, but I know that I love this show and I'm willing to persevere through this anxiety because I love this show so much, even if I'm just, you know, in the ensemble, I'm not featured, doesn't matter. I just need to go to prove to myself that that I can find joy, that I can just have a, a good time doing what I set out to do. And, you know, without really talking to anyone, of course, except my family, that was what I went to San Diego to prove to myself. And it, it worked out. I was able to go. I still had a little bit of anxiety, but I was able to learn the tools that I needed to get through that and be able to still bring joy to the stage and and to my life through theater and look what it led to i get to play phoebe eight times a week now in a show that i absolutely adore with a cast that i love beyond measure well i'm glad you had the opportunity i'm glad you were able to come in and talk with me it's been wonderful it's been really so fun thank you very much Catherine walker thank you so much thanks for having me you can catch the full unedited interview with Catherine Walker, as many as almost all of the interviews in the first half of this season at broadwaybullet.com or at soundcloud.com slash broadway bullet. If you are a regular listener, or if you have just discovered Broadway Bullet, I have just set up a Patreon page. Please support our program by pledging a dollar amount for each podcast episode. I'm not going to make anything from these donations. All donations will go to expenses in producing the program and providing flexible, part-time jobs to theater students for helping with the editing, follow-up, and more. Visit patreon.com slash broadwaybullet to contribute, or just click the link on our main webpage. Thanks in advance for your support in creating quality theater podcast programming. Talking the Trades of all the people I brought into Broadway Bullet so far, I do not think I've yet had an opportunity to bring in a general manager to talk about what they do and all the excitement that entails. And we're lucky to have somebody who's worked on oodles of projects, including of her long list, uh, recently Bedbugs the Musical. And she also heads the program of theater management at the University of Miami. We are, uh, I'm proud to welcome Lisa Dozier here. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. So I guess the first thing we maybe need to set off for some people is what is a general manager? That's a great question. (laughs) 
what uh, what I love about general management is it's creative and it's administrative. Uh, I love all of the aspects from uh, being on casting sessions to making the deals, the contracts, to um, using both sides of my brain with budgeting, payroll, administrative, uh, and then getting to hire people I love to work with over and over again. Okay, so what is involved in the day-to-day? General manager overall is responsible for keeping the show running. Uh, maybe in good terms, is this a good, accurate assumption where the, where the stage manager takes over for the director once the show goes up? The general manager takes over for the producer. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, uh, it's. I serve as the, the producer's right hand, uh, especially when he or she is not on site, uh, being the main contact with the entire team from the creatives to the crew uh, and everywhere in between. And every day is a new surprise in general management. Every day there's a new problem to solve, which I love. <laughs> so any particular stories of things gone haywire? I'm sure you have to think on your feet a lot. Yeah, uh, <laughs> let's see. Um I'm trying to think of one that's appropriate to say in a public forum. It's, it's internet. <laughs> and as long as you know, blank out the names, um, you know, say so-and-so. We did. I was telling a war story last night. Uh, we had an opening night at the New York Musical Theater Festival for uh, production. And I was telling a story from a few years ago uh, where we had our lead actress went into the hospital. And she was a very specific type in vocal range. And so we had eight hours to recast. <laughs> Uh, and it was a period piece, and it, it, I had to go in front of the entire audience and explain why our lead actress would be on book, and that the audience would have to go on the journey with us. Amateur. Just and, she can't go off book in eight hours. To, she shouldn't be in this business. You know, she did some of it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a fun, triumphant war story that we overcame that I was just sharing. So. That kind of thing happens with festivals and readings and stuff more often than one would think, wouldn't they? Because obviously... If a better job comes up. Exactly. And sometimes uh, my niche is really doing um, middle off Broadway, uh, you know, mid-sized houses. But sometimes festivals are even more challenging than that. And I love working on new work with new writers, which is why I go back time and time again. And I love the challenges that come with uh, creating a safe environment for writers to work on new work in a really condensed period of time. I think it's really awesome for people to hear about different careers that are available, you know, in the industry, you know, because obviously not everyone in the world is going to get to be a professional actor or director, but there are ways of staying involved in that love of theater. But now I want to maybe for the flip side to scare some people away. Why? the? I mean, how I'm sure in some ways this is a, this is a job like any other job, just maybe lesser paying. (laughs) (laughs) I'm imagining your skill set could land you a much higher paid job elsewhere what, in the corporate business. What I love to say to my students at the University of Miami, many who are up here working with me this summer, which has been fantastic, is uh, they saw me yesterday. We had, you know, a myriad of fires to put out. And I turned to them and they said, how are you doing this? And I said, guys, don't do general management unless you can't think of anything else you would love better. And at the end of the day, I said to them, see, we made the show happen together. And, uh, and that's, that's what I try to relate to them. If they want to do anything else, if they're considering anything else, they should look at that. But <laughs> if they feel that that's their calling, then they're in the right place. So what is it about general management that makes it your calling? What is it about it that you love? For me, it boils down to supporting artists creating work and being able to facilitate that and, uh, and use the skills that I have uh, and being a leader uh, with making that happen and making the productions happen. 
when I can walk into a rehearsal and I see just artists buzzing away and creating, I know that I've helped create that environment for them. And it's very rewarding. On the flip side, even for dream jobs, I think, you know, there's a lot of people, unfortunately, there's a, there's in a, just a, a, a statistics, a statistics number thing out recently that said that only like 30% of people are working, you know, let's say they're working close to their dream job. 60% are neutral, you know, and 10% don't care. But even with the dream job, I think a lot of people don't know that there's bad days. So what are the kind of, what are kind of the things that get you down about this business that you sometimes have to buck yourself out of? Uh, sometimes the, uh, the, What's challenging is are the boundaries sometimes. Uh, when uh, I'm up at 8 a.m. when my vendors wake up and, uh, and go to the office and negotiating and whatnot. But if there's a giant problem at midnight, um, as there often is, uh, if there are late night rehearsals or there's uh, notes if, after, if you know. there are late night rehearsals, <laughs> like, like there's a choice. I didn't realize there was a choice not. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, 24 seven job. And that's the reality. And I'm lucky with, um, having friends and family that support that. Uh, but sometimes I wish I could just take a break and it mm. doesn't happen that way. And I have to push through it. And then, uh, and then the good days come again. I imagine too, there's a bit of uh, how do you deal with, I imagine there's a bit of feast of famine, feast or famine to this mm -hmm. job. Yeah. I, the, the other thing that I love to tell my students, uh, in addition to if they could do anything else, they should, if they want to, <laughs> is, uh, is if they are going to jump into this to say yes, because there are so many reasons to do a project. And when uh, everything comes together, that it's a group of artists and a project I really believe in and a piece that I love, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, but it doesn't always happen that way. And there are a lot of projects that I have done uh, that were I can see now laid out so I could meet a particular director and work with that director over and over again, or forge a relationship with a producer and foster, you know, their company and be a part of that or support an emerging actor that, you know, is now a star. So there are a lot of reasons to do a show. Okay. So for supporting for a, for a producer, what, what, what's your advice? When does a producer need to get a general manager? As for their soon show? as possible. What level of show do they need a general manager? Uh, I, I love getting on projects early in the, on the ground. I love, uh, when they're starting to do readings uh, and backers auditions and inviting people and being a part of that and part of that conversation, setting up the structure, uh, depending on the size and scope of the show, uh, and where the show should go in the country, if it belongs in New York, if it needs an out of town tryout and really being a part of that creative brainstorming process early on. I've been on a lot of projects where they have realized quite late into the process they needed management, uh, and that's always a fun challenge too. But the earlier I can uh, get on a project, also the earlier when it's new clients, the trust can be built to let them create their art, to let the producer go and do that, uh, you know, search for those investors while I can keep things going in the office for them. Uh, so getting to build that trust early on and be a part of the shape of what a show is going to look like uh, makes it that the general manager should be one of the first hires that happens. <laughs> okay. So I, I'm this hypothetical producer and I'm all on board. I'm like, yo, great. I need a general manager. Yo, <laughs> that was my being. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and uh, now I'm wondering, holy, uh, holy shit. How do I find a good one? Cause now you're obviously booked because everybody wants you now, but I try to always <laughs> say yes. <laughs> I think uh, the most important thing is word of mouth. Uh, asking around, doing your research. But isn't it horribly, not, so, to, not to denigrate, 
it's something that a lot of people don't know about. I mean, if I could be working on a show and have no idea if the general manager on my show is like any good or not. So how do we, you know, I agree word of mouth, but are there who, who can you, who's reachable to like the new producer putting on a festival show to really. Right. I I think it could be anybody in the industry that you trust. I, I mean, everyone ranging from, of course, other producers and who they like to work with, but even an actor or uh, a designer. And my referrals come from everywhere. Yeah. It's it's amazing. I got a call the other day from someone that said, hey, I was out having drinks with this this actor and they said they worked with you two years ago and that they had a wonderful experience with you. Would you be interested in meeting with me? So I, I think it's really taking that time to check references and know that if somebody you trust, trust them, that you can extend that trust. Okay. I'm going to give you a chance to get some, either some pet peeves or some like FAQ, frequently asked questions off your chest here for a few different types of people. So I'm a producer. And what's that thing that you have to, that you wish you didn't have to tell every single producer at that very first meeting <laughs> about your, what your relationship's going to be? I love to, to go back to with what I was just saying, which is a great jump, mm-hmm. is the trust is so important in the process. And knowing that uh, the people that are put into place really know what they're doing and uh, allowing them the freedom to do their job. Uh, of course, with checking in and communication. But if there's not the trust in the room to get the job done, then nobody's going to be able to have the freedom to work. Uh, and to do the best job that they possibly can. So that's that's the first thing. I uh, I love working with new producers. Uh, I enjoy that that process of almost a mentorship of explaining how the unions work, contracts, um, you know, checking references, all that kind of jazz. I'm sure you also have a different perspective. Have you? I mean, so you've worked with a lot of new producers, right? Mm-hmm. What is a what is maybe a frequent producer mistake you've seen as a business manager that you can maybe spare? You know, from their job, but mm-hmm. you've seen it. What's the, what's like maybe the most common producer mistake you've seen on your end that you can try to prevent new producers from making? I think allowing uh, the GM team to negotiate all of the contracts, unless it's a special situation, uh, creates uh, a nice boundary there uh, for a positive relationship with the team where there doesn't have to be a direct business-related mm-hmm. interaction between the two. Uh, I've seen that blunder. I've also seen. So you're, what you're saying is that the producer should just t- schmooze and talk away and then say, go see Lisa. I mean, that's how I like to do it. Yeah, so. that sounds great. <laughs> it's how it, it works best yeah. in my experience. Uh, and then also uh, there, there are always newbie blunders with the union rules and regulations. So I really advise producers when they're getting ready to jump, especially into off-Broadway or prorated off-Broadway, which is a newer model that not a lot of GMs or producers know about of doing, uh, you know, four or five performances a week on an off-Broadway contract. I I recommend that the producers thoroughly read the rule books with the unions before jumping into production. All right. Which doesn't happen as often (laughs) as you would think it would. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, any uh, closing shots you'd like to leave us with, Lisa, about state of theater, your hopes, why you're in it, anything kind of a statement for you that wraps up your love for theater? Uh, just that I believe in the off-Broadway community so much, and we're doing such great work that uh, I, I really hope we can uh, work on fostering new audiences for it, because I'm really proud of the artists uh, in, in that arena, and that I, I really hope we can work on on the budgetary issues the audience issues and we can uh we can have a new a renaissance of off broadway and that's the goal and i want to be part of that in my lifetime 
All right. Well, thank you so much for coming by. And, thank you for having me. And good luck in your busy schedule coming up this fall, I'm sure. Thanks. Backstage. All right. I'm sitting here with a, a panel that is, for me, the most exciting part of my trip here. I do want to give a special shout out to Katie Rosen of Campfire Films, who, uh, for no fee, anything, put this together uh, and organizing for very busy women to come at a single time to a place in New York is no uh, small feat. So I want to give Katie Rosen and Campfire uh, Film PR a shout out for that. We've got four wonderful women here to talk about an issue that's important, uh, become very important to me, which is the fact that there are so few roles for women uh, many seasons, many things going out there. And I, I want to try to start figuring out what we can do rather than just talk about it, but what we can we do and why is this issue important uh, for everybody, not just women. And so we've got a, a wild crew. I'm going to introduce them really quickly and then I'll give them each a chance to introduce themselves so you can hear their voice and they can tell you a little bit about what we do. And then we'll kind of really get into the juice of the issue. Um, I have Dale Orlander Smith, who's an actor in New York. I have Kristen Marting who's the artistic director at Here Arts Center. I've got Pamela Hunt, a director, and I have got Pat Addis, a commercial producer uh, here. So we've got a wide spectrum of people to look at this issue. And um, we'll just go from my left and let everybody kind of introduce themselves quickly and a little bit about what you've done and, and uh, give, give people some background and perspective for where this conversation is going to go. Hi, I'm Dale Orlander-Smith, and I'm an actor and a playwright. I just finished closing a play that I wrote and was in called Forever at New York Theater Workshop. And I'm best known for a play that I also wrote called Yellow Man, for which I was a finalist for the Pulitzer in 2002. Currently working on a few plays uh, commissioned for the Goodman and for uh, a play called Lady in Denmark, which is about Billie Holiday's first tour of Europe. And the other play is for St. Louis Rep about Ferguson. Hi, I'm Pat Flickeratis, and I guess I'm the commercial producer. Um, my most important play was Spring Awakening because it really touched on very important social issues, which are still as good today as they were in the 1900s, unfortunately. I have A Christmas Story, which I was lead producer on, and we bring back every year. It's um, now in... Um, you have to rent the script and option it, but it's going to be played all over the United States again, including um, down at Paper Mill Playhouse, which will be a very great production. Uh, I also just did Dinner with the Boys. I must say that was a cast of three men, and the director was a male. However, I made sure that our stage manager was female, our company manager was female, so you can get a lot of females um, that are not necessarily only playing parts. My sound designer, my costume designer, my set designer, they were all female. And so I think it's very important that we look at a bigger picture. And I also want to say, I don't want to monopolize this, but the slogan is 50-50 in 2020, which means that it'll be a parity of 50% women and um, in the year 2020. So we're trying to make that happen slowly but surely. And um, we can't push all the issues. But around the country, I will tell you that there are lots of female playwrights. And there are many female festivals 
which are exposing the females. I've also must say that I did Housewives of Mannheim that had four women and no men. So I think a lot has to do with a script, and I don't think you should push playwrights to only write a script with women. They're already being pushed for out in the hinterlands to have no more than four people, and that's already cramping a style. So I think to have the issue that they must have all female roles. I personally, as a female, think that's not right. I think that you should have what you need, but there are all other areas that women can also do besides being an actress. Uh, I'm Kristen Martin, uh, artistic director of Here Art Center in Soho. We do uh, theater, music, dance, puppetry, and media arts. Uh, we support sort of the development of hybrid work. We support work from inception through work in progress workshops, launch full productions of the work, and then help it go on tour. Um, we serve uh, 15 resident artists that way in long-term residencies. We have uh, countless other companies that work in our space through a curated rental program called the Sublet Series. And then we present um, international and national work um, and bring it into New York City through our Dream Music Puppetry Program and through our prototype um, Festival, which is an opera theater, music theater festival, which we co-produce with Beth Morrison Projects. Um, I'm also a director of hybrid work, um, and I uh, frequently adapt other works into a theatrical context to make them um, uh, theatrical works, and also collaborate with a number of contemporary writers on creating new works. Did we have a cow into the space? Uh, <laughs> like they move it. Construction. Should I continue? Yes. Um, hello, I am Pamela Hunt, and I am a freelance director, choreographer. I have directed for over 30 years, over 100 productions. I am basically a gun for hire, is how my life has been. I've made a living at it, at nothing else but this, which I'm pretty proud of, being a female. I'm currently co-president of the League of Professional Theater Women, which is an advocacy group for women in all aspects of the theater. And I thought it was, when they asked me to do this, it was time to give back because I have been out there <laughs> when there were very few women and I've seen how it's, how it's grown. And I, one of the things along the line I sort of specialized in was comedy. And I decided because there were very few women, now there are more, we have the Tina Fey's and all that doing comedy. In fact, I had the head of the Westport Playhouse once said, oh, can a woman really be funny? And yes, the answer was. So that sort of started me off. So uh, I would I try to hire women as much as I can if I'm in a position to do it. Like if I'm directing, I just hired a choreographer to be with me, and that seems to work well. But yes, there needs to be more women um, deciding on what pieces are chosen. All right. So as much as we can, I know there's a lot of issues in areas of passion. I know we need more women directors. I know we need more women playwrights. I know we need all of this. But if we can try to keep the focus as much to women, more women's roles, if now if some of those other things you think are solutions to get there, that's fine. But if we can, and I'll probably do next time around a big thing on, <laughs> on we need more directors and we need more playwrights. Um, but so my first topic that I maybe want you guys to discuss is how much is our, the way our institutions are set up being very classic heavy, both educational and regional, how much do the classics continue this trend of so few women's roles? And are there solutions to look at different ways of changing that? 
Well, the more female playwrights we get into the mix, the more female roles there are going to be. So, and it's the females who buy the tickets, basically. And so then I think if we get more female playwrights, I mean, one, one of the things is Broadway skews a lot of it because in Broadway, there are very few female directors and there are very few female playwrights. And even MTC, which is a wonderful organization, I know you've worked for them, Dale. This year, um, they announced six plays, two or more are TBA. But out of those six plays, there is not one female playwright, and the only female director is Lynn Meadow herself. Now, um, until we get Broadway to embrace us more, um, that's where the problem lies. But I think out in the hinterlands, uh, it's a different story. And I was on the board of League of Professional Theater Women, and I can tell you how wonderful Pamela is um, and the organization. And I was on the board for three years, and I could see the marked difference from the time I started on the board till I left the board um, this past June. And we have made a lot of strides. And I think that we're going to continue to do that as long as we don't get nasty. As long as we do it in a proper way, I think that we are going to see more parity every year. I, I want to make sure I understood where my first topic we're going to I absolutely believe. But we have a culture of educational theater, whether even that's regional theater, that is so classic heavy. And I don't think they're going to change being classic heavy. Well, it's. So how does that try tie in? Well, this? the classics. It's interesting. I when we I knew I was coming to this discussion today. I now subscribed to the Guardian uh, online, the British paper, and they did a study. A few, you know, this was a 2012 study, but I was looking at it, and they even broke down. They said this is this is one of the issues of doing Shakespeare, and they even broke down. I don't have it with me, but how many, which of the Shakespeare plays have more women in them, and which have more men, and which of those are being done in the theaters, which is, you know, let's face it, in London, that's pretty much what, and Chichester and all of that, That's they're doing a lot of Shakespeare. So they're, they're working on it even over there, where that's sort of second nature to them. And I think that is a problem when you have, you know, certain, you were asking about the classics, right? Or Shakespeare, I think that was on your thing. So that's, that still is a problem, just the nature of the play. Right. And I also think we also have to bring into the, to the gumbo, as it were, age. Because, uh, again, a lot of the times, like, because like I said, I'm a writer and an actor, so um, what will happen is is that people are looking at demographics. I mean, I just, I, when I was up at uh, the Long Wharf Theater, I just, like I said, I just finished doing this play forever. And um, the average means age at the Long Wharf is 73. Now, that's, all, that's also problematic as well, because, again, you're not going to bring in, I mean, what they're trying to do, with, what a lot of theaters now need to do is not just simply women. They also have to look at age as well and, and bring in younger voices, you know, that are, that are just as vital. And in reference to the Shakespearean question that you asked. Um, I might add classics. It's not just Shakespeare. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my bad. Yeah, my, but, bad. But, yeah, yeah. my bad. But also, I was just thinking about the, this specific question, and, you know. Um, I think there's also a cultural bias that happens with that because we tend to, th it sh obviously Shakespeare is, is wonderful, but 
again, not the end-all, know-all, because if you look at Shakespeare, you can certainly look at Ben Johnson. If you look at Ben Johnson, then you can look at someone like Terence, who, in fact, influenced all of that, yeah? But having said that, um, I think there's also, there's, it gets very complicated, because it, you also, there's also ethnicity, there's also race, there's also an expectation as a woman to write about certain, uh, uh, certain subject matter. You know, like a, a play that I saw that I really had fun was uh, the incredible, uh, the incredible sound of now, which was done at the Rattlestick Theater, right? And the the young lady, uh, Laura East, Easton, is the one that wrote it, and she was a rock and roll musician. And when I was coming out of the theater, I guess this was meant to be a, a, a compliment. Someone said, "I would have thought that a dude wrote that man because she knew rock and roll like the back of her hand." But having said that. There were, she, Laura herself told me there were a lot of women who would not touch that play because there's also internal bias with women as well. Mm. Hate to say, but it's true. Yeah, this I mean, does not make yeah. women look good. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a challenge in that the classics are done and that the classics are done straight. If they're doing, if they're pushing against the frame of the classic and challenging the form of the classic, then you can go a, a lot more places in terms of the way you're casting in terms of gender, ethnicity, cultural perspective, whatever. But if you're trying to do like a, a very loyal, what you perceive to be loyal, conservative production, you are really putting yourself in a pretty narrow box that's going to serve white guys. And that's, that's, the classics do not need to be done that way. There's a lot that can be done with them that doesn't take away from the content of the material or take away from the emotional experience of the material that can open up the casting and to address some of those issues. I agree. Yeah. We, so it's Shakespeare. Yes, we don't need to. Here's the problem. And I think a lot of people consider this in the classic canon now, basically 1960s and earlier, mm. we got death of a salesman and, you know, and all those playwrights from that generation, mm -hmm. a lot of which there is States that's still under copyright. And mm -hmm. we, for instance, you know, have those playwrights say, no, you can't tamper with our plays. Mm -hmm. Um, how is this affecting the landscape? I just feel we also see, we learn what we grow up with. And so if actresses are in our coming up through the university system and seeing nothing but these plays. This to me is the bigger issue. It's about the, 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 the representations of women that they see are very narrow, um, in general, especially as they're growing up, um, in theater, but also in mass media, the representations of women are so narrow, the roles are so narrow. And so what what's needed is a real opening up and a pushing of what ideas a woman can be, what ideas a woman can have, like what you were just saying about Laura's play mm -hmm. about rock and roll. Mm -hmm. Well, women don't think a play a woman would write a rock and roll play. They think she should be writing something that's about or, her sexuality or, or you know that. Yeah. Or also that rock she, and roll. That's a whole different ballgame too. But also rock and roll, you know, has changed drastically. Thank God, within the past twenty years, because. Prior to that, I mean, there was there was something cool about it in the fact that it was it could be any gender. Like when, you know, mm -hmm. the expectation in terms of rock and roll, the expectation in terms of theater. And this is where it gets very sticky is to write a woman's play mm -hmm. opposed to just writing a play. a play. Right. And that's when you get into the definitions of what a woman is and a woman playwright. It really gets funky like that. Right. And I think that you you said to focus particularly on this topic, but I do think it's very hard to only focus yeah. on yeah. the roles of women because I think that the roles of women have to do with the representations of women and it's about who's in control of the representation of women. Yeah, yeah. And as long as you don't have control of who's in representing women, then you're going to keep seeing these narrow roles and few roles, I think. And also, I think when you were talking a little bit, and maybe I misinterpreted, 
It's not about certain roles that can be played by men or like, like say, if you look at death of a salesman, I mean, I know about, oh gosh, about 30 years ago, uh, Arthur Miller, in fact, went to Mako, who's a great Japanese actor. He went to Japan and made, uh, you know, uh, you know, changes for the script for that. It's not just about a woman playing a man. I mean, if you use Shakespeare at this point, Shakespeare is almost mythological, mm. versing historical, you know, I mean, death of a salesman. Maybe it can be done by, I mean, I don't know, I, they, you have to watch the gender stuff with that because that's still relatively new, mm -hmm. you know? It's not a matter of putting women in men's roles as much as it is having new plays, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, oh, get the Well, remember, there was a time when women weren't even allowed to be on the theater stage at all, and right. it was all men playing women's roles. So now it's a little bit of a reversal but I have a very positive feeling that all these new young playwrights that are coming up, there are a lot of good female playwrights, and they're writing very good parts for females. And I'm on the board of New Jersey Rep, and um, about 50% of the plays have as many women as they do men, and some, um, there are more women. And so, and there are a lot of female playwrights, and they don't just have a female playwright for the sake of a female playwright. It has to be very, very good. And, and it is. And I think that as the standard and the opportunities for women are getting stronger and stronger. But we must not just think about only women who are performing. I really, as I said earlier, it's all the other things. There's projections, which is a fairly new medium, and women are taking the lead on that now. And there are all other capacities. Uh, the best scenic designer I've ever worked with is a woman. And the more and more women, like if Kristen, when she hires people, if she hires more women, if Manhattan Theater Club were to start to hire more women, the more women beget, beget, beget. And well, also, I mean, I did a reading it here. There were a lot of women that worked that, that you know, coming, you know, she has a lot of women working right. in, that, and in that, in that. So she's a poster child. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how much would a readily, in terms of looking for a solution on this issue, I mean, if we were to dig and like I were to say, put a page out, I mean, I have found a couple, and I just need to look more. If someone wants to do the classics, what are the plays that have a good amount of women? I know Moliere actually Moliere. is pretty good. Moliere. Um, I've discovered, you know, there's the House of Bernita Alba for an in, all-female. Um, Ibsen is pretty good um, in, in balance. Like, where can we, you know, would a resource like this, a list of here are your classics that can meet your criteria of being a classic community, but there's also some great women's roles. Is that something that's useful? Yeah, I think that would be a useful thing, especially for the educational community to help open up other options that exist. Because there's also a whole bunch of texts that aren't done as much, like the Jacobeans, that have a lot of women's roles. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there that people could be choosing from. There's a bunch of women writers that are from, like, Shakespeare's time and coming forward that don't get done. Um, the name of Gwen and Mallory Catlett. Uh. They organized that whole series of readings that, that were all those women writers. Mm, I can't remember the name of it right now, but I think they posted a website with the list of the plays. Um, sorry. 
Well, I think one thing, too, is to to have things, a lot of times women's works are in the second space. And it's also to get more theaters to make it be on the main agenda, like you were speaking of Manhattan Theater Club. It may be, they may work on it and they show it, oh, it's part of this series or whatever. But I think the ongoing thing is to get it to be a main stage, whatever, mm-hmm. production. And that is starting to happen, but I think it's a slow go. Well, you're the educator, so I'm going to put it back in your ball court. Why don't you do a series? Remember, women had to take pseudonyms. They were afraid to use, well, they weren't allowed to use their own name. T.S. Eliot, I mean, all these people. So maybe you can find a group of women who have written shows during Shakespeare's time and after and do a whole series for your class on that. I think you meant George George Elliott. Yeah, I'm in George Elliott. Yes, George Elliott, not T.S. Elliott. You're right. Thank you for correcting. George Elliott. So if you do that, I mean, maybe you as an educator can start a new wave in education of bringing these women playwrights up to the surface and let people do those shows all over. I mean, maybe do a a festival and, and start, you know, maybe... Yale and Harvin and all the Ivy League schools will pick it up. We've got some construction going on in the streets of New York for that is leaking into the building. For those listeners wondering, just ignore them. Oh, we do here. <laughs> but I also think, in general, just in general, there's there's really you know it, it's funny. There's a conservatism in general. That's I mean that that's happened within theater. I was talking to somebody the other day about this, and again, looking. I mean, there there were very few women's roles in the '70s as well, but People like, oh gosh, um, David Rabe, uh, you know, the early Shepherd plays and stuff, the stuff that was even shown on television. Actually, they, ironically enough, there were a lot of great roles on TV because TV, we, it's weird how it's, it's gotten, you'd see stuff like whatever happened to Amelia, you'd see stuff about sexual abuse back then in the 70s and they'd have a parental discretion as advised things that would pop up. I mean, I got hip to a lot of theater and a lot of film by watching regular television as a kid and, you know, being aware of and how I got, how I became aware of theater was especially the kitchen, kitchen stink, sink, 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 <laughs> I can never say that, was by watching TV, by watching like, you know, the movie of the week, it was, you know, it might have been Rachel Roberts week or it might have been, you know, Sydney Poitier week and watching, say, A Raisin in the Sun turned me on to that great female playwright. Yeah, part of why I'm bringing this up is I actually I don't I don't know if it's just incidental, but I feel like the problem has gotten worse again. I do feel like the it '60s, happened. '70s, '80s, we were coming across a lot more women's stuff happening, and then yeah. it's been shifting. Like the musical theater used to be the realm for women actresses, and now on Broadway, I bet wow. if I look at all the musicals, it's it's that same seventy-five percent shift to male roles. I mean, like I said, something rotten to women. No, it's, <laughs> it's really you no, know, it's really strange the conservatism that happened. It's like I was talking to somebody. It's a I mean, it's not. Somebody said, well, oh, it makes women look bad. I'm like, don't don't come to me with this nonsense, you know, because I'm the wrong person for you to talk to about that. Because if you start making that kind of distinction, then you're playing into the very bias you're trying to get out of. But, like, I was rereading The Boom Boom Room, and there were some interesting roles for women in that play. And the whole point was to show this this bestial behavior of, this, of, of, some, of some of these men. But that play I don't think would get done today. Well, one of the things that's happening, um, two of our members, uh, they were on the board, well, one was on the board, Judy Bynas, 
and Martha Sagatti, I can never pronounce her name correctly, forgive me, but they did a study, an off-Broadway study, uh, that they just, that we put out last um, year, went all over every place, and they took certain off-Broadway, they just started with that as as a criteria, and went all across the board, how many women directors, uh, how many uh, you know writers, down to uh, lighting, down to actors, and all of that. And it was very interesting. And they're beginning in a lovely way to go talk to some of these theaters and say just to make them aware that of hiring more women on all capacities. So I think that there has to be an awareness, you know. But it, I have to say one thing: what happens? It's just very easy to hire who you know. It just is. It's, I'm not saying it's right, but mm-hmm. people do that. They're doing a season. And you, you're putting it together quickly, and you just call up who you know. I think um, one of the problems regarding Broadway is that they have a tendency of doing a lot of revivals. And a lot of things that they do on Broadway, they're worried. It's very, very costly to produce a show on Broadway. So they try to make it as much as they can for the tourists. And... I think that's also a big problem. But on the other hand, you know, what if I gave a party and nobody came? They try to do what they think is going to get an audience. And I think that's also a larger problem. But that is why I think outside of New York City, there's great theater and much more exposure for women. I mean, because I think what we were saying this earlier, I think in... I mean, this is not just New York. This is also happening, you know, in London uh, as well, where there's a star director, because there's also the co-pros that are happening, you know, star director and or star actor. And, uh, you know, Patti Smith said something interesting. She said, but she moved out to Far Rockaway. She can't afford to live in Manhattan anymore. You know, watch now watch Far Rockaway. Turn it to a hipster place. (laughs) But but she said something. She goes, you may have to go to a place just to do your art outside. And you have to figure out what art means. That's a whole different ballgame versus what commerce means, right? And so, um, I mean, for my play, for instance, forever, you know, um, just very briefly, it takes place in Pelechez, and I use... Some of the, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge Doors fan. And so it starts and ends at Jim Morrison's grave. Now, I, at one point, I cannot use the music, not even a second of it, because supposedly there's a Jim Morrison musical. I don't know who the hell they're going to get to play Jim Morrison. <laughs> I don't know how you do that. But having said that, again, it does come down to commerce. And literally, I only need a few seconds of that music. But it's uh, so so, but I, but again I can't because I can get sued, so I'm not yeah. going to do that. But you know, but having said that though, again, it's um, it really gets sticky. I think you know you have to figure out: do you want to be a star or do you want to be an artist? And where can you do your work? There's also that. I mean, you really have to make the distinction between that as well. And also, again, looking at demographics because sometimes that does play a role in terms of the kind of work that you're kicking out. You know, and that that plays into gender stuff heavily as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to throw it in the mix to see how much people agree with this or not. As much as I want the things, I always try to look at reality. And I, I, I don't know if it's attributed to one person, but I've heard this a lot, which is the part of the commerce of this all, and it's been related to movies, but is women, uh, men go to the theater, men go to movies to see men, and women go to movies to see men. Is there any validity to how... Ha- now, that's a generality, not that the women don't, but is there a certain 
balance in our society that really is there that causes there to be more women's roles. What kind of movies are you talking about? Are you talking about the ones that are aimed to teenage boys? <laughs> or you're talking about just like... I'm talking that Mar- I, I read that quote is just as a general rule that that really men like, just in terms of a scientific, like what lights up the brain. Well, I think a lot of men like to watch men and women like to watch men. I think they're selling a lot. A lot of the block, these awful blockbusters, pardon me, that come out, they're, they're for teenage, you know, that, that's their big market. And I'm always surprised when somebody who I just really admire is all at once being in one, <laughs> you know, because they make enough money to last them forever. So, I mean, I, that's... Yeah, I, you know. I disagree. There's always been youth. You know, there's always been a youth culture. I mean, I mean, I, I was a little kid in the 60s, but when people talk about the 60s, I tend to think about the youth of the 60s, right? I tend to look at, I mean, not saying that it's it's utopian, but European women, I mean, they certain women... Of, of, for the most part, go through certain changes. But I look at someone like Jean Moreau. I look at someone like Catherine Deneuve. They don't have a problem aging. They will take roles that, uh, you know, I mean, she's not a great actress. Someone like Jacqueline Bisset talks about, you know, I'm not the way I was in 1968. I'm not supposed to be the way I was. And, you know, America, in certain ways, we're a very, very young culture. So having said that, I watch a lot of European films. Or, you know, films from, you know, Middle East, from Africa, from Asia. I watch that because it, the emphasis on physicality, that's a whole different ball game, right? In terms of gender. In terms, you know, I mean, people can't tell that you didn't get a facelift. What, are you kidding me? I love the fact that the face is lined and it has a life and it moves, you know, because it's supposed to move when you smile and laugh, you know? So I think there's also the gender thing with aging that comes into roles and us, you know, us as us as Americans, you know, just being young aesthetically. That's why we get into the whole thing about a woman writing a play or writing a screenplay or what have you. I tend to like kind of dark work. So like one film that I loved, I mean, a lot of people go, I can't watch this. I mean, I have a hard time watching it, too, is The Piano, uh, the, the piano Teacher with Isabelle Hubert. Um, I think it's brilliant. I think the book is brilliant written by a woman, you know, but a lot of people took offense to it, so. I think what you're talking about, though, is the problem. Like, there was this recent thing online about uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, who did not get cast as she's, like, what, in her late 30s? And she, they said she was too old to play yeah. opposite. And this happens. The big joke about George Clooney when he did, what was the thing with Sandra Bullock? And he hit, hit he came in here, he said, that's the closest he's been to a woman his age in the last whatever yeah. years. Because he's always with younger women. So I well, think Sean Connery with the whole yeah. James Bond yeah. thing. I mean, some years ago with Sella Ward, when she was in her, she was 33 at the time, and he was, what, 70-some-odd? And she was too old to be the Bond girl? The person who's really the the poster child for Marvelous is Meryl Streep. She continues yeah, to go on, and, uh, you know, she's just had a, a marvelous career. She's the exception. They are starting to make action films with women as leads. I mean, that's starting to happen. Yes, so right. we had Road Warrior this year. You know, that, you this know? ties into, though, while you yeah. say that, and a lot of people bring this up, I see a big trend that doesn't solve the overall yeah. numbers problem, which is one strong woman in the midst of a man's world. Yeah. No, I mean, I, but there are tons of little films now that, that where we used to just have the Hollywood industry in the last 30 years, we've had this whole indie film movement grow up. And so you have a much broader range of films. And yes, every American isn't seeing those films and on broad release, you still only have the blockbuster type films. But there are a lot of smaller films being made that have much more substantial roles for women. 
there aren't as many as I wish there were, but there's been huge progress there compared to the movies that were coming out, you know, in the 50s and the 60s when we only had the studios. Like, it's just, I, I feel like the doors have opened. And I think on TV, that's true too. Now that we have all these independent studios, that we have Netflix, we have BBC America, we have, there are a lot of interesting women's roles being written by writers that aren't just from one crop um, mm -hmm. and one studio's perspective. Also, you know, if we could clone Kristen and here, it would be a great thing because she is an advocate for women. And it's, it's slow going, but we don't have to look at Broadway as a barometer. I think we have to look at the whole country as a whole. And people like Kristen and there are other people who are doing that in New York who do give favor to women. And we don't hear about them. We only hear about the bad guys on Broadway. And they are bad guys on Broadway. But, you know, I, as I said earlier, I think there's a very good movement and more and more women are getting an opportunity. And that's what we want. We want an opportunity. Yeah, and, and one other thing I want to tie up here, and like I said, yes, they all get tied in together. There's just not enough women involved at all. But I, I think a point you brought up earlier is one thing that feels good that anymore if a woman writes a play they expect it to be a woman's play yeah i think with almost all minorities if you're asian and you write a play why isn't it about the asian american experience or you know if you're if you're whatever and us white guys get the kind of pass to write about whatever we want yeah i mean it's like yeah. with, you know with the forever piece it's like you know it's i mentioned because I'm, I'm a huge I'm, I'm a huge rock and roll fan so when the play i mentioned like growing up in you know in the 70s with listening to the Ramones and talking heads and television and, and, you know, those, you know, alternative rock and stuff like that. And me being black and female, no one knew what to do with it. It's like, there's nothing to do with it. Just sit down, listen to the fucking play. And that's the end of it. What's the matter with you? Mm. You know, that that's the end of it. And, it also, and it's also, it's interesting. We bring this up because I mean, it's going, it's going someplace. It's going, you know, in January, do it again. But someone had told me people love the piece, but they don't quite know what to do with you being a rocker. And, being black and female, because I even had to go through some stuff. So what is this thing going on here? You've got like yeah. a ring in your nose, and yeah, whatever. Well, no, that's it's, not... It's more than just that. I mean, even there's a certain theater that, you know, tried to say that it was a ghetto piece, and it's like, wow, here we go, ghetto, right? Or they tried to say it was like precious or push, and it, it's none of those things, you know? So I had to really sit down and work with people racially and sexually the gender stuff in terms of you know saying what this is about and just ask me questions you know let's just work through this don't don't go through this mess about it and not to mention the fact also because it goes into you know because i'm a plus size woman so it goes into size race ethnicity then that creates a whole thing to you know physical size and and, and a woman and oh my god it's just <laughs> so one solution and, and i want to does anybody think this actually helps or is it ghettoizing the problem which i see a lot of solutions to this is bundling it all in one which is we're going to have a women's festival we're going to have women's playwrights with women's roles and women will direct you know usually two out of the three of those are often or right. sometimes all three is, I, I i don't go for it i, I mean I, I used to have a queer festival at here that was queered here and the artists that i wanted to work with that i was most interested in were feeling like it was it was shining a light on their work and it was saying what their work was supposed to be about when they might not have wanted to write about queer issues in the same way that we were just saying a woman may not want to write a woman's play. I think that the work needs to be 
a part of the fabric of the organization of the theater and of people's lives. It needs to not be a special occasion thing. Not It's not that this is Women's Day, this is Women's Month, so we're doing women's plays. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, women are 50% of our population, so 50% of what should be at every theater should be created by a woman, directed by a woman. You know, it should, it should, it should be happening. I'm not talking about quotas, I'm just saying, why not represent? A big thing that I want in my theater is to represent the complexity of the city that I live in. So I don't just have white men working in my theater. Because that's not who lives in New York City. Why would I do that for yeah. the community that I live in? It doesn't make any sense. Well, in terms of having a women's festival, I think it's a good thing only because it gets out the works of women. And people from all over can see and hear it. And a lot of those plays will have another life in another theater and another time. So I think that's why it's important to have them. I mean, I'm, I feel the way you do, and I always think that it's important that the best person do the job. And I came out of an industry where there weren't any women in the industry. I was in a promotion industry, and I know what it's like to be dissed as a woman. Um, but I think that you have to be in a bigger picture for it, and any way that women can get their name out there and their work up is a good thing because to have it sit in a drawer is not any good thing. So I think if it's a woman's festival that gets it out there, then it's important. Speaking of a woman's festival, there's going to be a, a big one in Washington, D.C. coming up. It's like all of the theaters are going to do women's. It, it goes on like, what do we say, for six weeks or something like that. It's going to be amazing. And I think the league is going to go visit, want to be part of panels and things like that. So it, it is a pretty big effort, and I, you know, we wish them well, and it's pretty exciting. Now, with new playwrights, like I said, if, if a lot of organizations are geared towards classics, and then the new works they pick, there's another thing. Let's, it may or may not be true, but let's go with the assumption that newer female playwrights at least have a higher percentage of women roles than other plays. May or may not be true, but let's just go with that for a moment. Um, right now, we're in a production somewhere where any, almost every regional theater wants nothing but a world premiere. And the virginity of a play is popped and they don't want to see it. Now, considering that we got the classics getting done over and over in new plays, I see that essentially what this policy hurts the most is the women and the minority playwrights who don't have a substantial resume yet. Um, do you understand what I'm talking about? Have you seen this kind of virginity popped? Yes, I mean, I, but there's also a, a, a movement happening with the National New Play Network and with other places to create rolling premieres so, so that you... Your theater does it, and her theater does it, and her theater does it, and all of you call it a premiere, but it gets three productions. And so this is happening more and more, and it's also, it, it, it's, it's in a good and a bad. The good is three productions. The bad is that um, that's one show often. It's, the, it's a co-production between those three companies. Everyone's saving money. That's one of the reasons people are doing it. And it plays at all three of those places with the same design team so, and the same actors. So it's not necessarily more work for everybody, um, but it is a way for that play to have a longer life. Um, I also think that touring is happening more in our field now than it used to. So uh, like Dale's play is going to several theaters and has already no. been. It's only, it's only going to, I mean, it went, we, we started at uh, Center Theater Group, uh, Kirk Douglas. We right. went to 
Long Wharf, New York Theater Workshop, then in January, go to Portland Center Stage. But that's great. I mean, that, that's a wonderful tour of, that, of, of, of a theater piece. Mm -hmm. But those, three, those are the three theaters, not so much uh, Portland, but the, three, the connection in terms of the... The, right. the pro, the, the it was a rolling pro. premiere. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Right. So that I mean, that's an example. I mean, that's happening more. Yeah. And that's great that people are thinking that way. You're also seeing collaborations between presenters and producers. So you have the nonprofit um, presenter. You have the nonprofit producing theater company, and then you have the presenters that might be in the museum houses or might be in the colleges. And the work can tour from the presenter, I mean, from the original production with the theater company, and then go to these presenters for shorter engagements, not even sit downs, but shorter like one week engagements. So, I mean, I feel like there are opportunities to extend the life. It is a problem, but I feel like it's a problem the industry is starting to move past happily. But the regional theaters need to be more open um, to programming a broader range of work and not just have one new play in their season, but have two or three new plays in their season. Um, Am I being incendiary? This, I would say, not just here. This is everywhere. Um, and hopefully, I, I'm sitting here with four very people who break this mold, as I say what this mold is, but um, I don't think our culture teaches women enough to be entrepreneurial. I, 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 I'm not going to say it's built into men, but clearly more men are willing to be entrepreneurial and take that, you know, that kind of throw everything aside risk than women. How can we instill in women more the desire, the drive to be entrepreneurial. Cause I did think that has some of it in there. I mean, I'll just say like, you know, just anecdotally, I know like a dozen guys who started their own theater company, you know, and, and, and no women. What does it have to do my, with funding to the government? Who is the government funding? Uh, yeah, and, well, and these are all people, no funding, no anything. They're just willing to okay. throw their neck out on the line and do it. There's no reason a female couldn't have done the same thing. You know, I, just, I, know, I know a number of women who've started theater companies, so it's just not not in my ex, it's not yeah. in my personal experience. But maybe that's here in New York City. Uh, well, the, yeah, I'm talking Montana, and, and it's been here. Right. And I'm not saying there aren't women who aren't right. in, in, in entrepreneurial at all. But I'm saying I do think that just what you I look at the stats, more bigger, men take a. I don't know if I I don't know if I agree with that premise. I agree that there are more women that are running smaller organizations. There are more women at higher levels yeah. in smaller organizations mm -hmm. than there are women at higher levels in large organizations. I think that that is a different issue than mm -hmm. that women aren't entrepreneurial enough. I feel like there there is still a, an, a lot of sexism and the perception of whether a woman is entrepreneurial enough or if a woman is a capable businesswoman or if she would be as persuasive a fundraiser. Like I feel like there are a lot of ceilings there that are that are preventing women's rise and that there are I will say that I feel largely that men are in control of the board of directors of those organizations or in, in charge of those organizations. And so it's harder for a woman to come up through the ranks. And a lot of women see that, I think. But I know tons of women who are running small to mid-sized organizations who are the founders and leaders of those organizations. Um, but they're, they're not growing, um, they're not running $5 million a year organizations. They're running $300,000 a year organizations or organizations of my size, which is just under $2 million and with the smaller staff. So that's, there just aren't a lot of women that are running top budget organizations in this country and making the artistic choices to select the work. In, in your experience, when you say if, if they're founders and stuff, how, how much of the, they're not turning from $300,000 organizations to 5 million. And I, I, this will sound horrible my asking, but I'm truly on, honestly asking mm -hmm. it. How much that is because they hit a glass ceiling or how much is maybe they've gotten very happy with what they've accomplished. There's a lot of horribly unhappy men out there who are willing to push for, you know, 
and, and I'm sure women, I'm not saying the whole thing, but I, I do think there is some sort of tie in entrepreneurial and I'm not, again, I'm not saying there aren't any women there are, but I just seem to know more. And I know person, and I know a lot more women in general, I would say personally. And yet I know a lot more men that are like, just kind of throw, throw everything out on the line, so to speak. And, and quite often aren't happy. <laughs> I will say. Well, I, um, First of all, I think men still control the money. That's number one. And number two, it's um, look at all the CEOs and the COOs of our country, and there are still women are really in the minority. So if a man does it, he's a good businessman. If a woman does it, she's a bitch. And that still exists. There still is that wall. And I'm sorry, it does exist. And it exists in the theater, it exists in business. It's just the way it is. And there are a lot of women across the country who, as you said, are not entrepreneurial. They want to be taken care of. And you can't fight that. Well, I think also you were talking about starting a theater, but I mean, I think in some of the, the, the regions, it's like, does the board, will they also hire a woman to be, they may hire a managing director, but not an artistic director. There you go. That's what I say. There you go. That's, yeah. So that is the money part. They, they might have for that, but not, you know, there are many more of them than there are people in, with the artistic. There are tons of women in middle management in those large yeah. organizations. So it's not that their women aren't being hired. It's that they're not being hired for the positions of leadership and generally artistic leadership um, in general. No. They're being hired some. I'm not saying not at all. No. But, <laughs> not but, no. but you can count on your two hands the number of women artistic directors of large organizations yeah, Lynn in the Meadow, country. Yeah, Lynn Meadow, Princeton, Carrie Perloff. Emily Mann. What is it? Emily Mann. That, Mann. That's yourself. Susan. I'm not large, though. I'm a smaller organization, but um, Atla Atlanta, Susan, and um, the Alliance. This is, yeah, yeah. Alliance, also right. Also Washington, mm -hmm. Molly. Molly. Right, Molly. Yeah. So that's about it. Mm -hmm. That's about it. That's it. Yeah. Isn't yeah. that messed up? And in, yeah. and in, and in, and in England, uh, the uh, Indu Babashingham runs uh, the Tricycle Theater. Right. Uh, that's about the, and I don't know who else in England runs anything. I think she's it. Mm -hmm. And then I think in Galway, you, in, in, you've got the, the Druid Theater that's run by Gary Hines. Mm -hmm. You know, but beyond that? It's also very important that women hire other women. Yeah. And that is a thing that they don't always do. Is, is anybody here else willing to talk to this issue? I think you, it hinted like you might have something to say about this. Oh. Women hiring other women. I mean, I did hint at it, you know, because again, it's like there's, there's a, a piece that I wrote, because I write solo pieces and I write multi-character pieces I mean, and, and multi-character pieces as well. And there was a piece that I wrote that, uh, again, for the most part, women were very cool with that, but some women got a little pissed off at me. It's called Black and Blue Boys, Broken Men. And it was done between Berkeley Rep and the Goodman. Even though I'm in New York, a lot of my work comes outside of, because I'm not real commercial, like, you know, like, and it's about all men who've been abused. But the way it was written, where anybody of any color can do it, it can be uh, male or female, transgender, whatever it is, whatever, as long as you have the chops to do it. And in, what, and in that piece, there is a woman who is a sexual predator. And there was a woman that said to me, 
how could you write this? I said, because women can be sexual predators. And I said, you want equality. I said, but you want uh, the kind of equality that you want is very measured, to say the least. You know, I said, because there is, there is a, there's, a, there's a hypocrisy that happens. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, one of the most famous people in theatrical history is a sexual predator. She goes, who is it? And I said, Blanche Dubois. I didn't write it. Tennessee Williams wrote it. I want to, I'd like to keep you, but I have to keep my hands off of children. I didn't write that line. Tennessee Williams wrote that line. You know, so a lot of people are uncomfortable with that. I mean, it's very important that, you know, as we have this discussion, that like our, you know, like like men, we're multifaceted. You know, we are we are people that produce, we're good people, we're bad people, we are we can be the dregs of society. We can be you're at top notch of society. So when I say about in terms of writing women's plays, women's roles, a lot of times it's beginning to change, I think, generationally speaking, that we just don't write about the oppressed woman. There are women that kill. There are women that, that have babies. There are women who don't want to have babies. There are women who want to be present, and we're going to have one, fucking A. Um, you know, like we have, we have to write multifaceted people because if we don't, Right, multifaceted people. We're playing into the very bias that's helped to oppress us. So, yeah, I'll speak to that. Have you seen this? There's a long term strong women roles, and I think a lot of people misinterpret that and mean we have boring women's roles because they don't have flaws. They don't have, and I, I think there's a lot of writers out there who interpret we need strong female roles and come crank up boring females mm-hmm. because they're afraid to deal with the issues she was talking about right now. Right. Yeah, I think that's a real I think that's a real truth that that happens. Um, I, I also think that in old material and in new material, there's a range of women that can be chosen and that can be put on the stage that are really interesting, really engaging, really complicated and emotionally exciting to watch, just like there are male roles like that. So we don't have to make that narrow choice. I think um, the better term maybe to spread around is nuanced female right. nuanced yeah, women's correct. roles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's true that that there are that that there are women um, in positions of selection, whether they're artistic directors or producers, who are not always willing to take the risk on bringing another woman into at to the table. There are women who do, but there are also women who won't make that risk. Mm-hmm. Um, they won't take that step because they already feel like they're holding on to their position, and they have to prove yes. something. And they have uh, financial pressures on them, and they want to make sure that they perform at the level that they're supposed to perform at. And there's all this gender stuff all the time that women's plays don't perform as well as plays written by men. I don't think that's true. I think that happens sometimes. I think that happens with unknown writers as opposed to known writers. I don't think that it's a male-female issue. I think it's about the marketing that's behind it. It's about the positioning of the work and how effective you are at marketing it. I think if a show that you put in your season isn't selling well, that's on you, not on the writer. That's on you as the producer to why it isn't selling well. You've got to get to the bottom of that if you believe in the work. I have a question for you, Kristen. Do you think that um, when people look, the average person, I don't mean people in the business, do they really look to see if a male or female wrote the play and make their decision on whether they're going to see it by the name of the playwright? I don't think they do. I think they decide to go because the material, the idea of what it's about interests them or because there's a performer that's in it that they want to see. I think truthfully, those are the two biggest factors. 
Um, and, and for people in the industry, it's that they know someone on the project. Yeah. That's the third factor yeah. that because so much of our constituency is theater goers, theater, theater makers and theater goers. There's so much of an overlap there, you know? Yeah, that's right. I don't think the audience cares, but I think a lot of the initial buzz comes mm -hmm. from that. Who do we know that's on the project? Mm -hmm. And when there's less women to begin with, it's just more mm -hmm. like if it's a male on the project, it's going to get more buzz because we know them. And I think the same thing, movies, film, everything. Nobody cares about the writer, you know, sometimes not even the director, but those insiders will just start buzzing because of it. Mm -hmm. And if that buzz doesn't start, is that, you know, whose fault is that, you know? I mean, we think a lot about, um, and I know I, I have the benefit of having a very small space. So, you know, I'm only trying to reach 30,000 audience members a year. Each show that I'm doing is only trying to reach two or 3,000 people. So I have like a small constituency that I'm trying to reach. But I'm like, okay, New York City, there are 8 million people here. All I have to do is to get two or 3,000 people to want to come see this. So what are... Who are the people that would best be served by this work? Who's this work for? And trying to really think about who would be excited and engaged by this work and figure out how to engage those people when you're developing the work. So by the time you get to the full production, they've already been hearing stuff about it. They're excited and they want to come see it. So you build a relationship with people over time. I mean, theater is about community. It's not just about a, a, a product that we're putting out into a marketplace. It's about engaging in a dialogue, a social dialogue, um, an emotional dialogue. And so I, I think that... This is also part of how you grow an audience for more women's roles, how you grow an audience for work that's more balanced, is having that relationship and that conversation early on in the process of making work um, and hearing what they want and finding the right people who will get excited about it and then be advocates for the work. Mm. You know? yeah, I think it's getting close. I think I want to drop my idea and, and see, what you, <laughs> see, what everybody, see what everybody thinks. Um, so let me give me a second to preface it. Yeah, take a drink of water or something. And, and okay, my problem with this, there's this, always this chicken and egg scenario that we can't mm -hmm. solve with it because so much theater is independent. It's like while the problem's pervasive all across the board, it's always one company, one company, one company. Yeah, they chose these two plays because of this. They chose this one play because of that. And there is artistic. There's a thing of artistic freedom and blah, blah, blah that goes around that makes it really hard to actually make anything happen other than pleading Please hire more women, please. Um, but I, and so unfortunately, I think, you know, I've always complained about lawsuits, but I found one area where I think actually the law might actually work. And I know we have a lot of college listeners and high school students and college students listening. And I have one area that I think can be targeted. And I think, well, it doesn't solve everything. I think it can ripple and start affecting other areas. And that is and I'm starting to find numbers and starting to get some people to put numbers together, but would people first off agree that most university theater majors are filled with about 60 to 70% women studying? Mm -hmm. I don't think yes. anything. Okay. I bet any, I bet we go to any of those. I I put my money where my mouth is in terms of picking my program, but I know I've seen theater programs that are the same thing. 70% men roles, you know, 30% men attendance. And this is measurable. This is people paying money mm -hmm. to go to get, their studies. Yeah. Right. There is Title VIII, which applies to sports and extracurricular, and I think that could apply. I think if we can round up some interesting lawyers and some students out there listening that their college program is being horribly unequal. I don't mm. think there's a number we put, but if the college is serving 70% women and 30% men paid enrollment in their major program, mm -hmm. yet are giving them roles for 30% women, mm. that there is some actual legal action that could take place. I think it's one area. High school still, there's no major. People can audition, unfortunately. You know, you know, community theaters, ah, it's all open. But here's a measurable. They're paying for enrollment. 
and they're not getting equal training. Hmm. That's interesting. And I'm, so I'm wondering, what do you guys think? How feasible is that? How can we find lawyers willing to take, take that on? Or, are you talking about universities that have an arts program or yeah, a, an a arts major? major, a major? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. That there may that something to the effect of that if they aren't serving up a season that is roughly in comparison to the actors enrolled, that they're not serving their students. But how would that extend itself, say, to places like the American Academy of Dramatic Arts or places like HB Studio, which are not necessarily? I mean, I think American Academy at one point. I don't know whether they did this. They still do this where you can do like you can get an associate's program and then you use that and then I think uh, those those credits and you can go to a, a regular you know a university but how would that apply say to acting schools then if you're going to use do it? they put on productions some HB studio has the HB players so we'd have to look at it. tell us are your productions you know how are your productions casting needs balanced with your students enrollment, enrollment? Okay. I think that's a measurable legal way we can target this. And if universities need to start all of a sudden coming up with plays, classics included in that realm, mm -hmm. that fit their enrollment, I think it can open up a whole new market elsewhere. Mm. <laughs> the argument the universities may give you it's like um, I see a lot of I'm invited to a lot of musical theater programs. You know, you know, Michigan has a good one. There's a, there's a bunch of them across the country. And what they do is they do a presentation of their students. They do either scenes, they do musical musical numbers, they do whatever. Agents come, directors come, people like that come. So I guess that is their answer of how they're doing it you know i mean if, if mom and dad is okay, i'm gonna be to you, to either whoever's playing devil's advocate here i'm not sure but keep going with devil's advocate i'm gonna no answer. i'm just saying it's 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 like that yeah. is probably how they may not get the you know whatever the production they're doing in school i guess it depends on what it is so you're saying but that i it, think i'm just gonna play devil out i'm not targeting you specifically no but, but here's also what's happening is that there are so many okay this is a totally different thing but there's mm. so many people coming to new york i mean it's like there are many shows I've cast to go someplace I could have cast it three times. Mm -hmm. They're turning out all these well-trained people. Yeah, I'm not, but, I, and I'm yeah, not going to attack you as a commercial director. You're putting out what show you no, want no, to put no, out. But I'm, no, but I'm just saying. Mm -hmm. But there, there, there's just so many of them. So they may not be getting served doing productions, but they're turning them out. Is what I'm saying. And I'm saying that if you are going to do productions. Yeah, that they should still they match. They should be match. The, the yeah, okay. The constituents. Like, yeah. Okay. Because mm -hmm. if I'm a guy, I have a whole lot more opportunity to get extra training for my same dollar. Because he, yeah, because he, he, yeah. yeah. he gets five yeah. roles a year, and, one, and the woman gets one. Role. And the people yeah. get, may get to come and just do this one thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. um, I think one of the reasons that you don't have more males is that there's still a stigma attached for straight guys being in an acting class or on a, it's just the way it is and i think that might be the problem but i mean i i don't know have you checked the enrollment like at yale or some someplace like that might have even distribution because a lot of men go into directing and the uh, other parts of the arts not necessarily acting but I think in your university, what you might do is try and get some of the jocks to take up acting. I mean, dancing has certainly helped the jocks, so 
maybe you can do something. Our problem right now isn't getting more guys, and certainly not. <laughs> I've got enough competition. <laughs> no, but I mean, you're saying that it's not a parity there. That's all. I know, and I'm saying that's. I know that's where I'm saying that's where we can start to shift. Is if they have to meet their parity, which isn't even fifty-fifty. Right. They have to meet like a 60, 70 percent, you know, area on giving women's roles. I think it's an interesting idea. And what about focusing on the parents? Like would the parents want to say, I'm going to send, you know, Geraldine to this university because she's going to get a chance of getting more roles versus Mm -hmm. she's just going to, you know, do her education through that one audition. I mean, would that be an incentive, too, that if parents put their they're putting the bucks up? Yeah, I think it would be for women to have those opportunities. Yeah. So if that's something like what you're talking about. You're onto something, pal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I like to say, I, I know there's a lot of students, and then that's part of why. So everybody seems to think, I wonder how much university is going to hate me. But I know, we, like, <laughs> like, I know from the past we've had a lot of high school and college students listening. So I'm yeah. hoping with this platform, with that idea, that we can yeah. start. Number one, right now, um, I do have some friends, some a great dramaturg who's starting to help research those specific demographics. What are the enrollment numbers? Would, would you like me to help get you some wonderful female scripts? <laughs> uh, yeah, like I said, I want to showcase those. I mean, to me, it goes hand in hand. If I'm going to attack the college system, and I'm going to, I love the college system, but I think, and, and that it's not even a thing. It is truly, they're paying for the same education, and, and, you know, and they're not getting it if... They're the doing so. I think a lot of that is providing. Okay, well, here are your alternatives. They're also starting their resume there. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're starting their resume mm-hmm. at college. You're yeah. starting it there, yeah. and you build on that when you get out. So that's another thing that goes along with what you're saying. And if you have no roles for women, have, what are you mm-hmm. going to be? I'm the the fifth down from the left. Yeah, right. You know. Right. <laughs> are you using the list that's been been put out the last two years now that has all the women playwrights on it? If you, if you could send me a link to it, and I'll start. Like I said, I'm going to put right. all this up and start sharing it on the website. I'm just bringing the podcast back, mm-hmm. although I have a feeling this interview is going to be the bomb I drop at the end of the first half of the season to sit over Christmas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so. Uh, since we like that idea, I'd like all of you to take one moment and give you kind of your closing remark. Maybe the one thing you could do or would like to see um, that you maybe think is, is actually doable, achievable, just a wish, even if it's not achievable. How would you, your, your closing statement for each thing, and repeat your names again for everybody who mm-hmm. kind of missed it all from the beginning. I'll let whoever, whoever comes up with a, their closing statement go first. Sure. Um. So I, this is Kristen Martin, uh, the artistic director of Here and director. Um, I, I just think that there is a lot of great work out there by women, and there are some resources that can help you find that work if you're not aware of it. But there's a lot of great contemporary work being made with a wide range of roles for women. And um, to check out those resources and make that work happen, it's not hard. It's easy. And uh, people will come and be excited. So do it. Well, I have to agree with Kristen. That's absolutely true. And I think there is a lot of work out there that's wonderful, written by women. And just to give the women the opportunities will be a very great plus factor. And you could be the forerunner of it so that all colleges who have programs can follow your lead. 
Uh, this is Dale, Dale Orlando Smith. Uh, I'm saying uh, keep women, keep writing, but also realize, too, as a great female poet and sexton said, that you can write anything and you have the right to invade your own privacy. Pamela Hunt, director summing up. I think the places we work, if we have an opportunity to encourage the powers that be, mm to hire more women, to do more women plays. I think that can be done. If you're established someplace, you can talk to the artistic director and say, hey, how about doing this or how about doing that? I want to be more specific for one sec. So okay, you sure. could go to the American Theater website, TCG's website, tcg.org, and there's a ton of plays that they have published online that you can check out. Um, there's also the Kilroys. That's the list that I referred to, I was you good. and that's they they release a hundred new plays by women every year that are being produced that they think are interesting plays. And then there's also this is the one I was just looking up the fifty fifty um, uh, twenty twenty no the fifty fifty awards which is put together by the International uh, Women Playwrights. And so they also publish a list of theaters that are producing more than 50% works by women. So you could at least see the titles of those shows, and then you could try to get a hold of those plays. So there are three very specific resources that people can look up to find better roles for women and better plays by women. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for making uh, some time in your busy afternoons thank and your, you your wonderful careers. It's been a great discussion. I, I enjoyed it very much. I'm excited to see where this possibly goes. Definitely need some volunteer lawyers out there who want to get some publicity. So will you will you stay in touch with us so we know what's happening on your front? Oh, absolutely. Great. Good. Terrific. Thank you very much for Thank having you. us. Yes. Curtain call. That wraps up the first half of our brand new season. I am so excited to be back doing this for all of you. I uh, hope you'll spread the word over break. Our next episode is going to be in the third Tuesday of January. So that'll be January the 19th. And we'll be back with all of the interviews I'm getting this uh, next coming week. Again, I'll be doing interviews from December 14th to the 18th. And I'll be posting some of those people on uh, Twitter and Facebook. If you want to pay attention and maybe ask some questions, I'll use your name. In any case, I look forward to being with you all again uh, come the next half of the season. Again, uh, I am Michael Gilbo. I am the producer and the host. Caroline Reyes was my associate producer and assistant. And our location sponsor was Sid Golds. Check that out when you go to New York. It's a really fun place. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, 
you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.